You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The perfect pastor is really hard to find. But I am happy to say that someone somewhere has finally found him. Listen to this description. The man writes, After hundreds of years, the perfect pastor has been found. He is the church elder who pleases everyone. He preaches exactly 20 minutes. No more, sometimes less. He condemns sin, but he never steps on anybody's toes. He works from 8 in the morning until 10 at night. He makes $400 a week and gives most of it back to the church. He drives a late model car. He buys lots of books, wears fine clothes, and has a nice family. He's always ready to contribute to every good cause. He is 36 years old, and he has 40 years of preaching experience. He is tall on the short side, heavy set in a thin sort of way, and very handsome. He has a burning desire to work with the youth. And yet he spends all of his time with the senior citizens. He smiles constantly while keeping a straight face because he has a keen sense of humor, but he also finds that sense of humor seriously dedicated. He makes 15 calls a day on church members, spends all of his time evangelizing non-members, and is always found in his office when needed. We are so lucky to have found him. Unfortunately, he didn't last long. He burned himself out and died at the ripe old age of 32. No doubt, we all recognize the absurdity of such a standard. But if we're honest, we'll admit that as we went through that list of expectations, there were perhaps a number of them that we thought to ourselves, yes, that is exactly what a pastor is supposed to do. Perhaps you thought to yourself, yes, the pastor should spend all of his time with our senior citizens. Or maybe you thought, yes, he should devote all of his energy towards noble causes. Or maybe you thought, yes, a 20-minute sermon sounds so good right now. Either way, we all bring our expectations to the table when we look for a senior pastor. And more often than not, we are tempted to think that the man has failed his calling, if he doesn't live up to our standards and our preferences. I remember having a two-hour conversation with someone who left the church a few years ago, and I walked away from that meeting completely confused, probably about as confused as they were. For a couple hours, he expressed all the things that were wrong with my leadership. And so I sat there quietly, and I listened to him, and, and he would say things. He would talk about what my kids wore. He didn't like the fact that he wore Disney princesses and that kind of stuff, you know, on, on off days. It, he was worried because he said that I spent all my time at the church and not enough time with my family. And then a few minutes later, he argued that I spend way too much time uh, at home and not enough time at the church. About three or four contradictions later, I had to ask him. I said, please help me understand, what is it exactly that you want me to do? To which he just replied, I just want you to be my pastor, which is good and wonderful. I then asked him if Pastor Bill, my predecessor, if he had done any of those things that he expects me to do. And it was at that moment that the light bulb went on. The man looked down at the table and he had to admit, no, 
Pastor Bill didn't do any of those things either. You see, in his mind, he had an idea of what he wanted the pastor to be. He had a wish list, but he had no one to point to as Exhibit A, who could fulfill everything on the list. And, and even if he could, even if he did, it wouldn't really make a difference because no two pastors are alike, just as no two men are alike. We all have different gifts, backgrounds, resources, experiences, and so forth. So how do we know if a pastor is really doing his job or not? How do we know if, if our pastor is cutting mustard? How do you know if he's good enough? Especially when your expectations maybe aren't being met and you start to hear whispers from other people and, and you hear that they are disappointed too because he did or didn't do this or that. Or what if, what if the worst happens? What if we start to assume the worst and accuse leadership of things that simply aren't true? How do we quiet our hearts in the midst of the storm and, and sift through the slander to arrive at the truth when our pastor fails to be all things to all men all of the time? Well, that is exactly what happened here between Paul and this young church in Thessalonica. After planning the church, he wanted to stay with them longer. He desired to be with them. He loved them. He wanted to continue to pour into them, but he couldn't. Circumstances forced him to make an early exit. And it's too bad because that event that transpired that forced him to leave early, it opened the door for some within the church to start whispering, for some within the church to start criticizing and assuming the worst concerning Paul. They started to say things like, you know, Paul, he wasn't a very good shepherd, was he? I mean, after all, he left us. He was a coward. He came to town. He gave us the gospel. He said, here, do this. Give your life to it. Be persecuted for it. And then he ran away as soon as the going got tough. When the chips were down, he just wanted to save his own skin. In fact, it's got me wondering, did he ever really care about us at all? I mean, maybe he was in it for the money. Maybe he was in it for the prestige, or, or maybe it was a power trip. He just wanted to control people. He wanted to command them and tell them what to do. You know, the more I think about it, he called himself a shepherd, but Paul wasn't a very good shepherd, was he? At first, most of the church would remember Paul, and they would remember the truth, and, and they would remember his ministry before them, and it would be easy for them to dismiss such false accusations. But as time dragged on, Paul he would remain out of sight and out of mind. And as the persecution for being a Christian would get worse and worse in Thessalonica, and as the weeks would turn into months, and then those months would turn into years, and there was still no word from Paul. Why hasn't he written? Why hasn't he picked up the phone? Isn't a good pastor supposed to do that? Where is Paul? Does he love us? Does he care? After a while, those accusations, they started to sound a little more believable. It started to make a little more sense. Maybe Paul wasn't the tough and tender shepherd that I remember him to be. Maybe he doesn't care about me. And maybe he is a self-centered jerk. Maybe he's not a, a faithful shepherd. How do we know that these thoughts were starting to take root in Thessalonica? Because these are the accusations that Paul addresses in 1 Thessalonians 2. We learn in chapter 3 that Paul sent Timothy back to, to check up on them, to make sure that they were doing okay. And thankfully, Timothy returned with an overwhelmingly positive report. In chapter 3, verse 6, 
He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. That's a good report. That's so good. Most of the church was was still in love with Paul and his companions, his fellow pastors. They understood the demands of gospel ministry, so they didn't resent him. They supported him, even at a distance. And that meant the world to Paul. But Timothy, he also brings back these rumors that some in the church are starting to talk. They say that Paul is a coward. He's a fake. He's a charlatan. He's in it for the money, for the popularity, for the power. And he doesn't practice what he preaches. Now Paul finds himself in a very awkward situation, a hard situation for anyone in ministry because he now has to defend himself even though he doesn't want to. The majority of the church is behind him and and the majority of the church looks to him for spiritual leadership. They still would consider him their spiritual father. He is the one who brought them the gospel and they love him for it. But there are a few over here who are, who are flapping their gums and, and they need to be silenced. Not for the sake of Paul's ego or even his reputation, but for the sake of the gospel. Because Paul realizes that he represents more than himself. When he stands up and says, thus saith the Lord, he is not speaking for himself. He is speaking for God. He represents Christ to them. Most of them never had the chance to see Christ at his first coming. None of us here today have ever seen Christ, not yet. So we all need godly examples, Christians who will make it their aim to think and to act like Jesus, to model Christ-likeness, to encourage us to pursue greater Christ-likeness, who aren't afraid to open their chests, to open their arms and, and open their throats and scream, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul knew the attacks against him were personal. You can almost hear his heart breaking as he leaves chapter one and enters into chapter two. But he has to address this issue because the credibility of his message is on the line. So with that in mind, please follow along as I read the first 12 verses of this emotional chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter two, starting in verse one. Pastor Paul appeals to them by saying, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error, or impurity, or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. 
For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Wow. Chapter two is one of those chapters that grows a little bit bigger each time you look at it. Paul's defense of his ministry here, it tells us a lot about spiritual leadership. So over the next several weeks, we are going to look at nine traits of a faithful shepherd. Our goal will be to answer the question, what makes a shepherd faithful? But before we answer that question, we need to answer another one. We need to set the table before sitting down to enjoy what Paul has prepared here for us today. So today we're going to hop around scripture and we're going to answer another question. Not what makes a shepherd faithful, but simply what is a faithful shepherd? What is a faithful shepherd? Look at verse one again. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. That word for vain, it literally means an empty pot or an empty vessel. He says, you know and I know. He appeals to their experience, their memories. He says, you were there, you remember, you know, brothers, and I know that Whenever we came to you, we didn't bring you a hollow endeavor. We weren't like so many of those other orators that would come into town, drop something worthless, and then walk away. We gave you something of substance. We didn't waste your time with hot air and empty promises. We were effective in our ministry to you. In other words, Paul is saying, I wasn't a failure. I was faithful. My companions were faithful. And so it seems good for us today here as a church to pause for a moment and see what that faithfulness looked like. For us to take a moment and see what the Bible has to say about a faithful shepherd. I have five headings for us today to to hang our thoughts on as we explore this very important topic. So we'll begin with the faithful shepherd's role. That's That's heading number one, the faithful shepherd's role or his office. Who exactly are the shepherds of the church? And how do they get their position? The Bible uses three terms when referring to church leadership. They are elders, presbyteros, overseers, episkopos, and pastors, poime. All three are synonyms for the same office. And they all have subtle distinctions between them. They aren't the same word. There are differences between them, but they all relate to the same man, the same office. Elder refers to the man's spiritual maturity, Overseer refers to the man's office, and pastor or shepherd refers to the man's ministry. But they all refer to the same man. So don't let these three terms confuse you. When you see those words in Scripture, they all refer to the same office, the same group of men, just one. And feel free to use them interchangeably as you go through Scripture, or even outside of Scripture, as you talk about men who fill this position. A pastor is an elder. An overseer is a pastor, uh, uh, an elder is an overseer, and so forth. That's why every once in a while you'll hear me jokingly refer to John Ecker as Pastor John, or Ian Garish as Pastor Ian, 
Because biblically, there is no distinction between staff pastors and lay elders. None whatsoever. In the passage we looked at for our scripture reading just a few minutes ago, all three titles are used to refer to the same group of men. In Acts 20, verse 17, Paul assembles all of the elders, the presbyteros of, of Ephesus together. And then in verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, to care for or to shepherd, poimeno, for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Peter brings all these terms together and he uses them interchangeably as well. In 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, a fellow presbyteros, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, poimeno, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, episcopeo, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. There's only one office. And we have three titles for one group, and that group composes the spiritual leadership of the church. Why? Because Christ, the chief shepherd, he sees the need for leadership within his church. So he has appointed men to pick up the mantle and to care for his sheep. But not just any man, qualified men who are willing to suffer for the service of the church. And that brings us to our second heading, the faithful shepherd's requirements. His requirements. What qualifies a man to lead the church as an under-shepherd to the great shepherd? Not everyone who can lead should lead. So who are these men? Let's flip over for a moment to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Just a couple of books to the right. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Familiar passage for many of us. Here Paul provides the character requirements for assuming the role of shepherd. In 1 Timothy 3 starting in verse 1. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires or desires to the office of overseer, of the elder, of the pastor, the shepherd, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil." Notice, none of those qualifications are special. They aren't exceptional. They don't exactly set a man apart from other believers, except for one. And that is, he must be able to teach. That's it. Every other characteristic is part and parcel for the Christian life. They are character traits that appear over and over again throughout the New Testament. And every believer is already expected to live this way. And none of these qualifications set an elder apart from other Christians because they are all character qualities that we have all been commanded to perform, to pursue, to cultivate within our lives. So the elder is simply someone who exemplifies the Christian life. 
The elder obeys the commands of Scripture, and so Scripture has changed his heart, his character enough to make him an example to the flock. The shepherd must be all of these things in order to be qualified for ministry. He must be a living Christian. And if he isn't qualified, then he's not called to the position. He has no right to assume it, no right to take it on for himself, because God is the one who qualifies the man for ministry. We have another list in Titus 1. Let's go ahead and look at that one as well, since it's brief. Titus chapter 1, towards the back of your Bibles. Titus chapter 1. It went too far. All right, Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put, that, put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be, again, above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. As you can see, not everyone is qualified for the task. But Paul isn't concerned about the man's education. Notice that he doesn't say anything in here about how educated the man might be. It's as beneficial and as wonderful as seminary can be. It doesn't matter whether the man has a degree or not. Notice, too, that Paul isn't worried about the man's real-world experience either. The elder doesn't have to be a businessman. He doesn't have to be a respected manager or a pillar in the community. Paul doesn't even look at the man's proven track record for service within the church. Think about that. He doesn't say, look for the man who stands at the door passes out bulletins and greets you with a smile every Sunday. Instead, he says, look for the man who lives the Christian life. If he can do that and teach, then there's your guy. There's your man. First Timothy 3 and Titus 1, they give us the requirements for the job. And the single overarching qualification that is supported by all the rest is this one command to remain above reproach. That means that the shepherd the leader, he can't be someone who lives in sin. A pastor isn't free to do whatever he wants. He can't follow the calls of his wicked heart into the shadows and live there. He must cultivate self-control and maintain a reputation of blamelessness in all areas of his life, in his marital life, his social life, his business life, his spiritual life, you name it. Now, yes, that's true for all of us. We have all been called to represent Christ. But this man, the elder, the shepherd, the overseer, he has the unique distinction of being a public model of Christ to others as a shepherd. That's what we saw in Philippians 3.17, not too long ago, when Paul said, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The faithful shepherd must be someone who models godliness in the church, who can legitimately call the congregation to follow his example. Again, that's why Paul steps in to defend himself here in chapter 2. 
He's not looking for a fight. He's not holding up the shield in order to protect himself. No. He's, he's also not going to step down from ministry just because a few people can accuse him of sin. He's not going to do that because he knows the truth. They don't have the power to make Paul blameless or not. Public opinion doesn't trump the facts. Instead, he says in our text twice that God is his witness, and he keeps appealing to their experience. He says, as you know, brothers, as you know, and you are witnesses. He says, regardless of what anyone else says, you know the truth, and God knows the truth. But he also knows that these false accusations, they will hurt many. They will divide the church if he doesn't do something about it. And if these false accusations, these assumptions remain unchecked, his reputation and his influence could be destroyed, making him unfit and unqualified for being a shepherd. So he has to address it. He has to remind them, look, friends, brothers, I'm blameless. I'm blameless. I'm above reproach. I'm not living in sin. So cut it out, please, I beg you. He says, I'm not living in sin and I'm not behaving sinfully towards you. And so he brings them the facts about his ministry and his character because that is what matters to God. And those are God's requirements for the man who takes the office. But that being said, no man is perfect except for Jesus. A man might be above reproach, he might have a godly example that is worthy of imitation that the church can follow, but he is still a sinner who survives on the grace of God. He still blows it. He still falls short every day in his pursuit of holiness. Just think about Moses. Moses, literally the most humble man on the planet, according to him, right? But also according to the Holy Spirit who inspired him to write that. Here he is, the most humble man on the planet, according to Scripture, at the time. And yet, he lost his temper with the people, and he struck the rock in anger when God told him to speak to it. His patience with his grumbling congregation wore so thin, he lashed out, and in the process, he disqualified himself from entering into the promised land. Even Moses, even the best, blow it from time to time. So what are the checks and balances that God has established for his under-shepherds? What keeps the under-shepherd in line and prevents them from becoming heavy-handed overlords on the one hand or congregational lapdogs on the other? How do, they, how do they walk in that tension? Who shepherds the shepherds? And, and, and how does that kind of shepherding look? How is it different from everyone else? Well, that brings us to our third heading, the faithful shepherd's restraint. The faithful shepherd's restraint. What keeps the pastor in check and where does he turn to for accountability? Two places. First of all, he is accountable to the Lord. He's accountable to the Lord. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. What does that mean? It means that if you are a member of this church, I, myself, and the other elders, we will one day stand before the Lord, and I will have to give an account for how well I watched over your soul. I'll have to do that. I mean, think about that for a minute. 
Think about the people who are here today. Do you want that job? Do you want to stand before the Lord and say, here's how I prayed for them. Here's how I ministered the word. Here's how I cared. Here's how I shepherded your people, Lord. What a job. Do you want to stand before Jesus for the ultimate performance review and tell him how well you kept watch over all of these souls? Because that is exactly what your elders are going to do when we stand before God. It's no wonder James 3 says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The faithful shepherd is first and foremost accountable to the great shepherd. It's his flock. It's not ours. And we have a responsibility to fulfill our duties as stewards who will one day give an account for our stewardship. So we humble ourselves and we submit to him above all else knowing that one day we will stand before him and give an account. That's heavy. It's a, it's a heavy thing. And then second, we are accountable to the other shepherds, to the other elders, as God has appointed a group of men for each of his churches, not just one pastor and not an entire congregation. He has set aside a group of men to be that congregation's shepherds. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Because according to the Bible, there is only one legitimate form of church government, a plurality of elders who are accountable to the Lord and to each other. You won't find sheep voting in scripture. I'm sorry, it's not there. You won't find elders asking the congregation for permission to accomplish great things for the Lord, like replacing the carpet. That's not there either. Instead, you have biblically qualified leaders leading and the rest of the church following. None of the churches in the Bible were led by a solo pastor or majority opinion. Neither. None. Rather, Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders in every city. James instructed his readers to call upon the elders, plural of the church, to pray for the sick. According to Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church they planted. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. A little bit later on in this same book, in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work. Over and over and over again throughout Scripture, you have this model, more than one leader in every church. And it's the plurality of elders who come together in accountability. If you have, think about this, if you have a group of biblically qualified men who are living the Christian life, who understand the weight of their responsibility before the Lord and are committed to holding each other accountable, if you have that, then you have a leadership team worth following. You do. When you don't have that, you have problems. You have problems in the church. More often than not, that's how the church gets itself into problems. That's how people get hurt. It's because we think that our way is better than God's and the way that he has designed and prescribed for his church. This is how he has structured his church, folks. We know the role 
that Christ has decided for his church to be led by a specific group of people, the, the elders, the overseers, the pastors. We know the requirements. Each man must exemplify the Christian life and be able to teach. Not everyone can or should take this position. And we know the shepherd's restraint, that he can't do it alone, and he can't serve the sheep well by, by letting them lead the leaders. He can't have ultimate unchecked power but at the same time, he can't be powerless either. He needs to be a team player on a plurality of elders. All very important aspects of faithful shepherding. But what exactly is the elder supposed to do then? What is the job description? What, what are his duties in leading the church? What will God hold him accountable for when it's time for his performance review? Let's look at a fourth heading the faithful shepherd's responsibilities. His responsibilities. I touched on this just a little bit at the beginning. But we all have different expectations when it comes to our shepherds. We want them to stay busy, but we also want them to be available. We want a young guy with lots of experience who visits everyone and still makes time for his family and so forth. Here's how one man describes the position. He writes... Somewhere between the call of God and the heart ward of the local hospital, there exists a specialist variously called a minister, a preacher, a pastor, a clergyman. He is a hero to his wife, a stranger to his children, a fine boy to his mother, and an easy touch to down-and-outers, a name on a mailing list of hundreds of agencies and organizations and an example to his flock. To some people, he's a guy who has nothing else to do but get ready for a sermon once a week. To some, he's the person in whose presence you must not curse, drink, or smoke. To others, he is a dear friend, a Johnny on the spot when death's angel hovers near. He's the one whose ministry continues when the medics have done all they can do. He's the man who can mend marriages, but who can't find time to fix his wife's toaster. He's the nice man at church who pats babies on the head, even though he's not running for office. He's the one who marries young lovers, prays with the sick, and buries the dead. He's a financial expert, a public orator, janitor, errand boy, typist, file clerk, writer, public relations expert, poor golfer, professional tea sipper, and punch drinker, journalist, reformer, evangelist, pastor, business executive, counselor, prophet, bookworm, diplomat, human being, sinner, base, tenor, whichever is needed, planner, and a teetotaler. Ministers are found everywhere, preaching in church on Sunday, listening in meetings, teaching a class, looking at a clock, giving invocations, giving benedictions, waiting in maternity wards, sympathizing beside caskets, standing behind pulpits, pleading causes, serving on committees, reading the Bible, playing football with the kids in the vacant lot near the church, watching someone take a final breath, driving expectant mothers to the hospital, sitting behind a desk, lying underneath a car, standing on the roof of buildings under construction, dreaming, meditating, at home at dinner time, not at home at dinner time, standing before women's groups, delivering addresses, meeting in conventions, diagnosing the world's sickness and problems, and then finally prescribing the cure. Friends, some of that is true, especially the golf part. But how much of that really comes from the Bible? And how much of that is simply cultural busyness? Well, we're in the right place to find out. 
David Harrell writes, perhaps the most explicit yet overlooked books in the New Testament defining the character and responsibilities of a pastor are right here in First and Second Thessalonians. In a book of essays written by the faculty of the Master Seminary, Richard Mayhew provides 17 elder responsibilities from First and Second Thessalonians alone. Let me share them with you. In First Thessalonians 1, we see praying, evangelizing, and equipping. In chapter 2, defending, loving, laboring, modeling, leading, and feeding. In chapter 3, the elder is watching. Chapter 4, he's to be warning and teaching. In chapter 5, exhorting. In 2 Thessalonians, he lists encouraging, correcting, confronting, and rescuing. That's praying, evangelizing, equipping, defending, loving, laboring, modeling, leading, feeding, watching, warning, teaching, exhorting, encouraging, correcting, comforting, and rescuing. Biblically, that's what an elder does. And you will find all of those responsibilities elsewhere in the Bible, elsewhere throughout the New Testament. It's an incredible list, and it's an impossible task when you throw in everyone's expectations. So what should we expect from our elders? I think a good place to start is Acts 6. So please turn with me there as we consider the shepherd's duties. Acts chapter 6. And I do need to mention that this is not a prescriptive passage for the appointment of elders and deacons. But it is a descriptive passage for how the early church leaders prioritized their duties. And that's why we're looking at it this morning. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. He says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That's a serious problem. In the ancient world, the widows relied solely on the benevolence of others for their daily needs. After all, their husband, their breadwinner, their natural source of income had passed away. And so they relied on others. And, and to top things off, things are not right in the church. The Gentile Christians are accusing the Jewish Christians of neglecting their widows. They, they only sign up for the meal train when it's one of their friends. And so they complain about it. What about these widows? Well, naturally, all eyes turn to the church's leadership. You might expect them to roll up their sleeves, to get in there, to care for the people, to get the work done because that's what most of us would expect from a pastor or from a leader in the church. But look at their response in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer into the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. It's interesting to note that this solution pleased everyone. How often does that happen within a church? Everyone is pleased. Everyone says, hey, this is a good idea. No one complained about it. No one grumbled or, or had a problem with the fact that the leaders were not directly involving themselves in this issue. No one, no one grumbled about them, or, or complained that they were locking themselves away in their theological ivory towers to study or to pray. Why not? Why don't we have that here in the text? 
I'll give you at least three reasons that just come to mind immediately as we look at it here. First, they knew that their leaders care for them. Enough to delegate the work to spiritually qualified men and not just anyone. Second, they got the job done. The pastors might not have been the ones doing it, but they led well and they ensured that the right people handled the problem. And then third, they understood the importance of the word and prayer. And that's probably the most important aspect. They understood the importance of the word and prayer. They knew that if their leaders stopped ministering the word and stopped praying for them, as a people, they were sunk. So they were happy to see it delegated. With that in mind, listen to that Thessalonian list of responsibilities again, but this time, think about each one with the ministry of the word and with prayer in mind. What would each responsibility look like if it is filtered through those two things? Now, the first one is obvious, praying. Praying, praying the word, meditating on the word, being involved in prayer. But what about evangelizing, equipping, defending, loving, laboring, modeling, leading, feeding, watching, warning, teaching, exhorting, encouraging, correcting, confronting, and rescuing. You see, the elder might not have to stand before the Lord and give an account one day for every afternoon he shook someone's hand, but he will give an account for how he ministered the word and prayed for the souls under his care. Did he pray with the word? Did he evangelize with the word? Did he equip with the word? Did he defend using the word? Did he love, labor, and model the word? Did he lead with the word? Or did he lead with a best-selling book on Christian growth or on church growth? Did he feed God's precious sheep with the word of God? Or did he stuff them full of sermons about comic book movies and, and popular culture? Did he watch, warn, and teach them the word? Did he exhort and encourage, correct, confront, and rescue those who are drifting away with the ever-living and active word of God? Did he do that? You can see why the elder must be above reproach, living the Christian life and able to teach. Because the best way to care for a person's soul is through faithful ministry of the word and prayer. Is it okay to do all of the other stuff? To sit on committees? Yes, it most certainly is okay. Of course it is, and as much as we can. Maybe someday I'll even improve my golf game. But these are the primary responsibilities, friends, of a faithful shepherd. The duties that come with the calling. It is a hard job. It is one that is, it's not for everyone. It is a hard job that curses the man who isn't qualified or isn't called to it. It becomes bitter in his belly, and honestly, that's why most pastors quit the ministry within the first five years. The statistics are staggering. Most men don't last very long. They don't make it because of the pressure, the criticism, the disappointment that comes with caring for all types of people. But for the one who is called, for the one who is qualified, for him, it is a blessing, even when it crushes him. The Lord sustains that man. Why? Because he loves his church. He loves his church. But what about the man who loves the Lord, loves the church, but isn't sure whether or not his heart is in the right place? 
What about that guy? And how do we know if someone is a false teacher or not, if half of their books bless us and the other half are full of worldly advice? How do we parse through that? At the end of the day, what motivates and sustains a faithful shepherd? Well, let's look at our final heading, the faithful shepherd's resolve. The faithful shepherd's resolve. What drives the man of God to the role, the requirements, the restraint, and the responsibilities of shepherding God's people? What could possibly bring a man to that point? What gives him his resolve? Why does he do it? Let's turn back to 1 Thessalonians 2, if you haven't already. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll end our time with a few observations from our text. Because that was the accusation that was being brought against Paul. They were attacking his character and his conduct, yes, but they were also questioning his motives. So Paul has a lot to say about why he does what he does. We'll start with three motivations that he doesn't have before ending on a positive note with three motivations he does have. To begin with, we see that faithful shepherds are not motivated by love for peace. Love for peace. Look at verse 2. He says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. It was Martin Luther who said, Peace if possible, truth at all costs. When you speak the truth, even the good news that God has sent his only son into the world to die in the place of sinners, to suffer the cross and the scorn and the shame for us, even if you bring that message to them, it starts at the very beginning, doesn't it? When you declare that they need a savior, that they are sinful, that they are not innately good like they might think they are. Guess what? When you come to them and you declare to them that they need a savior, not everybody is going to like you. Not everyone is. My preaching professor, he would tell us in school that the pastor is the most loved and the most hated man in town. And he's right. He would say, I don't understand how so much, how so much blessing and cursing can fall on the same head. People will name their dogs after you. Some because they love their pets, others because they want to kick something when they get home. And it's so true. It's so true. It's a weird, it's a weird line to walk to be so loved and so hated at the same time. Faithful shepherds don't do it for the peace and quiet. Remember 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. Number two, faithful shepherds are not motivated by love for praise. Love for praise. Look at verses four and five. But just as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. You see, Paul cared about people, but he didn't care about pleasing people. He didn't flatter them. He didn't make them feel better about themselves or worry about everybody's preference. Instead of pleasing them, he worried about pleasing God. For Paul, the only thing that mattered was God's opinion on the matter. And it didn't matter who you were or what the issue was. In Galatians, we're told that he publicly rebuked Peter to his face because Peter was wrong. Listen, the shepherd who makes it his goal to please people and to be admired, the flatterer, 
the one who makes you feel good about yourself whenever you walk away from him, that guy has a rude awakening when he stands before the boss to receive his performance review. Because God is the one who tests our hearts and he knows why we do what we do. And then finally, faithful shepherds are not motivated by a love for power. A love for power. Look at verse six. He says, nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul says, look, as a man of authority, under authority, I could have demanded your respect. It is within my right and my rank to move from commanding to demanding because God has put me in a position over you. But that is not what I did. Instead, Paul treated them gently, like a mother, And then later in verses 11 and 12, he treated them firmly like a father. Faithful shepherds, they don't lead from a place of power. They don't pursue power. They don't desire power. They lead like a parent who loves and cares for their kids, like a gentle mother and a firm father. So if you're thinking about becoming a shepherd and there's a small part of your heart that desires any of these things, peace, praise, and power. My advice to you is to keep praying. Keep praying and don't take the first step until none of those desires remain. Don't do it. For your sake and for the sake of the church. If Yoda were a Christian, he would say, a pastor craves not these things. So please do yourself a favor and serve the church another way don't become a shepherd. Don't pursue that. Well, those are all the negatives. But what are the things that do give a faithful shepherd his drive? Well, first of all, faithful shepherds are motivated by love for the truth. Love for the truth. Look look again at verses two and three. In verse two, he demonstrates his commitment to the truth and how he suffered and bled for it. But what does he say here in verse three? He adds, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Paul cared about the truth. He was one of those theological nitpickers with only one bullet in the chamber of his weapon. He wanted to make sure that he represented God well when he stood up and he spoke for him. So that when he declared the gospel, it was really the power of God unto salvation and not just Paul's opinion. He loved God's word. He loved the truth. Second, faithful shepherds are motivated by a love for the Savior. A love for the Savior. Look at verse four. But just as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we seek. Why? Do we do it to please men? No. We do it to please God who tests our hearts. It's his love for God, his love for the Lord that keeps him going. As one entrusted with the word of life itself, the gospel, Paul's primary ambition was to please God in everything that he did. He was a man motivated by love, fear, and desire, and it all centered around pleasing Christ. And then finally, we see that faithful shepherds are motivated by love for the church. Love for the church. Verse six, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, 
though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Church, this is what a faithful shepherd looks like. This is what drives him to shoulder the responsibility and the weight of leadership within the church. Is it any wonder that the perfect pastor is really hard to find? Is it any wonder? Well, thankfully, Jesus isn't looking for the perfect pastor. He is that. But he is looking for those who are faithful. Friends, as we unearth the treasures of chapter 2 together over the next several weeks, let me encourage you to pray for your leaders, all of them. Encourage them. Let them know that you appreciate their work. And then take these truths and ask yourself, how can I apply them to my own life? I mean, we're not called to be elders. We're not all called to be elders, but we are all called to be elder qualified, every single one of us, minus the one about teaching. We might not suffer the same scrutiny, the same scorn as our shepherds, but we have all been promised persecution for living a godly life. We might not devote ourselves to the public declaration of the gospel every Sunday, but we are called to minister the word to one another and to pray for one another. So church, please don't dismiss chapter two as helpful advice for elders. Don't do that. Instead, let's pray. And let's look for the application here in our hearts first. And then let's look for ways to encourage our leaders to even greater faithfulness. Lord Jesus, Lord, thank you for giving your church leaders. Thank you for giving us this instruction from your word on how you want your church to function. Lord, we look at these things, we look at these lists, we can't help but scratch our heads and say, who is sufficient for these things? Lord, we know that we do not qualify ourselves. We cannot qualify ourselves. And we certainly can't live up to the task that has been presented to us, but Lord, you qualify the man. So I pray for the leadership of this church. I pray for every elder of this church. I even extend that further, Lord, to every Sunday school teacher, every person who is a man of authority or a woman of authority under authority. Lord, would you work in our hearts? Would you help us to be qualified men and women? Lord, we have seen, particularly regarding your shepherds, your under-shepherds of your church, we have seen the role, the requirements, the restraint, the responsibilities, and the resolve that is necessary for the task. Lord, would you bless us with good leaders? Would you bless us with men that you have made faithful? And Lord, may there be no deceit. May there be no desire for, for praise or for power or for comfort in any of our hearts. Just the simple and pure desire to please you, first and foremost. Lord, again, thank you for this instruction. Thank you for loving your church so much to die for her and to raise up leaders within her ranks. Lord, may we all lead well, 
May we all follow well. May we submit to each other in love. And may you be honored and glorified through our obedience, we pray. We love you, Lord, in your name.